Well, welcome everyone once again to this first Sunday in the season of Advent, this season that is marked by a lot of busyness in our wider culture, a, a sense of busyness as we rush around with trying to find the perfect gift for people, parties to attend to, families to attend to. Uh, for those of you Michigan fans, though, Christmas has arrived a little early, hasn't it? <laughs> and decisively so, I should add. Hail to the victors, right? Uh, Finally, but it happened, and it tells us something about Advent, right, to hold on to hope. The lions, you got to hold even harder on to hope, so all hope is gone. Well, hopefully in this season of Advent, we can hear a different message, so um, here in the church, we sort of slow down, we take the time that's necessary to prepare ourselves for the arrival of Christ, who we believe is the light of the world, the light that drives away all of the darkness. And there are a lot of ways and a lot of things that we do to help prepare ourselves for his arrival on Christmas Eve. And one of my favorite ways of preparing for Christmas is to watch Christmas movies. Uh, movie watching has always been one of my hobbies. It's something I've always enjoyed doing. It's something that Heather and I have shared together since we were dating. Um, but I especially love this time of year that I get to watch movies that it's a little strange to watch at any other time of the year. Um, John Youngerman and I were talking before service, it's weird to watch White Christmas in July. So we, we watch these movies during this time, uh, this time of year. And so that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks, is we're going to look at four different Christmas movies and how they help us to prepare for the arrival of Christ, how they help us during this season of Advent. Now, I only have four weeks, so some of those movies that you might like are not going to make it into what I'm going to preach about. Um, missing from the list are... A Christmas Story, uh, we all know that movie that plays on TBS for 48 straight hours on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, missing too is It's a Wonderful Life, my father's favorite Christmas movie, and then of course the hotly debated Die Hard. Um, it's, I mean, it's in the Christmas canon as far as I'm concerned, I'm just not going to preach about it. So. So this morning, we're going to start with the movie Home Alone, and uh, thank you, Diane, for making this uh, little s thing for us, uh, especially the picture with uh, Daniel Stern with a tarantula on his face. Um, <laughs> if you have a fear of spiders, don't look at that. Uh, we're going to look at the movie Home Alone here uh, this morning. Home Alone came out in 1990, over 30 years ago now, and it stars uh, Macaulay Culkin as the eight-year-old Kevin McAllister, who... Uh, who is the star of this movie. It's kind of his, out, his breakout role. And there's the, the famous scenes in this movie where he's uh, you know, t uh, shaving and he puts the aftershave on and his, puts it on and he screams because uh, of the pain from that. So there's all these famous scenes in this movie. But the movie has a lot of different conflicts throughout uh, the entire course of the movie. Uh, the first one is the conflict that exists between Kevin McAllister and his family. Family conflict around the holiday, something we know quite a bit about, right? Uh, the movie begins with the McAllister household in complete chaos because they're getting ready for their flight the next morning. The entire extended family is going to Paris for Christmas. Let's just take a second to acknowledge how nice that must be. <laughs> now, the family lives in a wealthy Chicago suburb, so they apparently have the funds to go and to do this thing. So the, the house is in complete chaos. Everyone's running in every which direction, trying to get everything organized and sort of lost in the scuffle is... Kevin, little eight-year-old Kevin, who's either being ignored by his family or being treated 
in really unkind ways, especially from his older brother, Buzz, who, quite honestly, he is nothing short of a, of, of a jerk throughout the entire movie. So he's being treated in this way. There's a, a fight that breaks out at dinner time between Kevin and Buzz, and Kevin gets blamed for it. And so, as punishment, Kevin is sent upstairs to the room in the attic to spend the night. There's, a, there's an actual room in the attic. It's not like he's set up to like the spooky you know, attic. There's like a couch and stuff up there. It's not like there's like cobwebs and stuff like up there. It's, it's an actual room. Um, so he's set up there. Before he goes up there, his mom, he says to his mom, Kate, he says, I wish my family would disappear. And uh, she says, you don't mean that? He says, yes, I do. And of course, they go to bed that night. Alarm clocks are set. Uh, this is, of course, in the days before cell phones when people use those as alarms and and so in typical movie fashion, the power goes out, all the alarm clocks go off, everyone oversleeps. So there's this mad dash to the airport, and in the commotion, Kevin gets left home alone on accident. And so he wakes up the next morning, starts looking around the house for his family, and he can't find them anywhere. And he says, I made my family disappear. I made my family disappear. We've all been there, right? <laughs> Especially around the holidays, I made my family disappear. Uh, but, of course, Kevin realizes over time that he does indeed miss his family. There's that scene where uh, he finds the mall Santa, and he says, I don't want anything for Christmas except for my family to come back home. But that's not before he takes a little bit of time to enjoy doing the things that he normally wouldn't be allowed to do as an eight-year-old child. Um, his dinner one night was a big heaping bowl of ice cream with all of the toppings on it, uh, watching a gangster movie that he shouldn't be watching. Uh, as an eight-year-old. So he enjoys it for a little while, but he does end up uh, missing his family and wanting his family to come back home. Then, of course, there is the conflict in that movie between uh, Kevin and the burglars, played by Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci, these bungling burglars who are kind of silly, kind of goofy. Um, they're called the wet bandits in the movie uh, because they keep leaving the water on when they rob a house. Um, so that plays into it later on when they get caught and Every, they all know every single house that they hit because of the, the water being left on. So there's the, the wet bandits. Um, they have plans to rob the McAllister house because they know that they're going to be gone in Paris. And so but they soon find out that Kevin is still there. I don't know why they didn't just leave the house, but they still felt like they needed to rob the McAllister house. Uh, but Kevin comes up with all of those intricate traps, you know, from the movie. You know, the, the door handle that's red hot, the blowtorch on the door as Joe Pesci walks in. Um, the ornaments on the floor that Daniel Stern steps on barefooted, um, and of course the, the tarantula that we saw here already. So all of these things, and eventually the, uh, the wet bandits are caught. Uh, Kevin saves the day, so to speak. Um, and then we have sort of understated conflict in the movie with old man Marley, the McAllister's neighbor. Um, old man Marley has all these sort of rumors going on around him. And it's just because he's older, he's a little bit different looking and all this sort of thing. But the rumor is that he's a serial killer who's killed his entire family, which is nowhere near the truth. Um, but they're afraid of him and Kevin's afraid of him. Then there's this scene where Kevin is in the church and old man Marley comes up to him and they have this conversation. And, and Kevin learns that, that old man Marley is going through the same thing that Kevin's going through. He learns that old man Marley has a conflict with his son, and he's not allowed to see his granddaughter on Christmas. So there's this moment of understanding each other. And then, of course, there is the conflict uh, with Kate, uh, Kate McAllister, Kevin's mom, who there's that scene where she's on the plane, and she sits up straight, and she realizes that Kevin 
uh, was left home alone on accident. So she does whatever she can to get back home to him so that he's not left home alone. So there's conflicts, anxieties, and fears all throughout the movie Home Alone. And it reminds us that, that Christmas comes to us in the midst of chaos and conflict and fear and, and anxieties. And it comes to us amidst some of the darknesses that exist around us. Those are the, the words that Isaiah gives to us this morning, that, that Christmas comes, that the promise comes for those who have walked in deep darkness, who have dwelled in the land of deep darkness. Now, the problem is, was, as, as Christians, when we come to prophetic passages like this one, uh, that seem to be speaking about Jesus, that we seem to think that the prophets are kind of looking into their crystal ball and, and they're seeing Jesus and they're seeing the nativity scene, right, in their crystal ball, right? They're looking in, they're seeing this happen. But that's not the case. More often than not, 99% of the time, the prophets are speaking about their own context and their own situation, addressing the concerns for the people that they live by and live around and live with. And so, I'm indebted to the scholar and preacher Tom Long for helping me to understand the, the geopolitical situation that is happening in the background of these words that Isaiah writes down for us. Uh, the situation involves a national crisis and a political crisis for the nation of Judah. Now, remember in the Old Testament, you have David and then his son Solomon. They rule over a united kingdom of Israel. The 12 tribes are united. But then after Solomon, the, the, the tribes split up. You have the 10 tribes in the north that comprise the kingdom of Israel. Then in the south, you have two tribes that comprise the kingdom of Judah. And so Judah, the perspective of the Old Testament is really written from the perspective of, of Judah for the most part, uh, just as a, for our own edification. Um, so Judah is on this brink of a national catastrophe, and that comes in the form of the Assyrian Empire, the, the great political and military power in that part of the world, uh, and they are threatening to overtake Judah. And so King Ahaz, who sits on the throne, is between a rock and a hard place, the rock being this nation of Assyria, and then the hard place being this little coalition of nations, of smaller nations, that are rebelling against Assyrian rule, and they want King Ahaz to join with them. But Ahaz hesitates, and so as a result, this little anti-Assyrian coalition decides they're going to send troops into Jerusalem to, to depose Ahaz and to put someone on the throne that is sympathetic to their cause. So what's Ahaz supposed to do in this situation? Is he supposed to uh, cozy up to the Assyrian Empire for safety, which will certainly make him into a tributary state and, in a sense, compromise his nation? Or is he supposed to join forces with this anti-Assyrian coalition, thus provoking the anger of Assyria and perhaps losing his nation altogether? What is Ahaz supposed to do? Either choice is really a compromise for him. And that's when the prophet Isaiah finds him walking around in the city streets. And this all begins back in Isaiah chapter 7. He says, Isaiah, he says to King Ahaz, don't join the anti-Assyrian coalition. Don't, uh, don't cozy up to the Assyrians. Instead, look to the promise of God that is a child. Trust in God. And what Tom Long says is that is not only does Ahaz now have Assyria and the little anti-Assyrian coalition to contend with, but now he has God to contend with. What is he supposed to do? What is Ahaz uh, supposed to do? Is he supposed to cozy up to the empire? Is he supposed to join the anti-Assyrian coalition? Because it's one thing 
It's one thing for pastors and priests and prophets to tell their congregations to trust in God. But kings have to deal in the real world. They have to make difficult decisions. And here Isaiah is telling him not only to trust in God, but to trust in this unconventional way, to trust in a child who will lead them. The most vulnerable and fragile among us will lead the people of God through it. And Isaiah says to to trust in that. Who among us would be able to easily trust in that sort of and that sort of thing. Ahaz is stuck in this false dichotomy, this false false polarity. He sees only two options, but God is not stuck between a rock and a hard place, that God sees another way through, that that God is going to send a child who will burst all of the categories, all of the preconceived ideas that we have. And what God is not in the business of is cozying up to empires God has always been against empires, those sorts of political forces that would claim ultimate authority for themselves, that would try to to stand in the place of God. And, And God is not in the business of these little coalitions. God sees a world that is completely remade and completely renewed, a world, he says, of endless peace, endless peace. We all desire peace in this season, but what Isaiah says what he says on behalf of God is that endless peace arrives through the establishment of justice. It happens as the the rods of oppression, as the yokes of burden are taken off. That endless peace arrives as everyone has enough to eat, as the, the victims of unjust laws are not treated in that way. It happens as justice is established. That is what Isaiah tells Ahaz to look for. Look for the child who will bring all of that into the world. And of course, uh, Christian, Christian interpreters or New Testament writers will look at passages like this one, and they will see that Jesus is the one who makes all of this possible, that the way towards peace comes through a commitment to his way of living, a way of, of love and justice and mercy and kindness. Those are the things that make for peace. What Isaiah says is that all of the the boots of the warriors, all of the garments that are rolled in blood, they will be thrown into the fire. All these sorts of conflicts that exist between peoples and nations, they will be gone and gotten rid of. And what Tom Long says is that there is a sense already in this passage that as we look for the peace of God, that there is a sense that it's already bigger than that. It's It's a picture of a God who will not give up on God's people, that the darkness is not all that there is, that we are not always stuck between a rock and a hard place, but that God is committed to making something new, that God is committed to bringing peace and light amongst the darkness. And if you've watched the movie Home Alone, there is that possible, there is that revealed in the movie as well. I was watching the movie a couple of weeks ago in my office trying to get prepared for this sermon, um, which was a fun thing to do in your office, by the way. Um, (laughs) And I shouted out, the, right, before the, right before the scene where Kevin sets up all the traps, I said, the best part's coming. And then Judy says, oh, the part where Kevin and his mom reunite. <laughs> and then I realized that the best part was indeed when Kevin and his mom reunited. If you've seen the movie 
you watch as, as, as Kate McAllister lands in France, the very first thing she does is she goes to the ticket gate and she tries to, she tries to find a flight back to Chicago and she can't find any. So she stands while other people are boarding and she starts trying to barter with some of the passengers saying, I will give you two first class tickets for tomorrow morning. I will give you uh, my, my jewelry, my earrings. My, I will give you $500 cash if you let me get on this flight now. And the flight only takes her, I think, to the East Coast. And so she catches a ride with a, a polka band um, led by the famous actor John Candy. And she rides in the back of a U-Haul just to get back to Kevin. A God who will not give up on God's people. A God who will continually uh, seek out God's people. The, the way of justice, the way of endless peace. It is constantly being worked through. It is constantly a possibility in our world. That the darkness is not all that there is. It doesn't matter what the darkness is in this season. You know, the darkness is something that dwells within, the guilt and the shame, the things that we hide away that we don't want anyone else to see. Whether the, the darkness is the conflicts that exist between families that becomes especially apparent in this time of year. Whether it be the darkness that exists around us, revealed in social and societal sins, the promise is that we are not going to always be stuck between the rock and the hard place. The promise is that light and love and justice and endless peace are coming into our worlds. And our goal is to trust in that, to look towards that. After Kevin and Kate reunite, the entire family comes in about five minutes later. It's kind of a funny scene because she did all of this to get back to Kevin, and they, she could have just waited for the next morning because they got back five minutes after she did. Um, they get back home, and there's this moment of, of uh, reun reunion, and, and uh, even Buzz, who's been a jerk throughout the entire movie, not only towards Kevin but in the way he talks about Kevin, even Buzz has something nice to say to him. And Kevin walks towards the window, and he looks out the window, and he, and he sees that the snow is falling softly as it, and magically as it always does in Christmas movies, right? It felt like that yesterday, didn't it? Um, he walks towards the window. He looks out, and he sees old man Marley reunited with his granddaughter and his son and his daughter-in-law. There's this moment of peace. You, you sort of you think that the movie's going to end on this peaceful note, and then from the background upstairs, you hear Buzz yell, Kevin, what did you do to my room? Because the room was wrecked when he was fighting with the burglars. And I think that that is a reminder to us is that this picture of endless peace, this picture that Isaiah paints for us, is one that is always in front of us. And this season reminds us of what we are working for at all times and in all places, what we are working for beyond Advent and Christmas, that we are working for this sort of endless peace. That our waiting in this season is not passive waiting. We're not just sitting around, but this is active waiting. Waiting that, is, that involves us in the work of creating the sort of world that is promised to us by this child. That we look with hope, we, we believe in that possibility. And so as we look for the child who is coming into our world, the child who will drive away all of the darkness, may your waiting be active. May you seek endless peace in, within, in your families, in the communities that you live in. Make that promise possible. Because sometimes the light of God is what comes through all of us. Thanks be to God. Amen.